This podcast was created as a part of Podcast Lab by India Film Project in association with Anchor by Spotify. Um so I come from I'm a storyteller's daughter. My mother is a storyteller and uh but I also realize that my entire family is a family of very uh very animated storytellers. uh right from my grandmom uh my maternal grandparents as well uh everybody has always enjoyed telling stories not just to one another but to me and to anyone who comes you know this is something as simple as uh, my grand my mom used to say this at, about her father uh, my tata you know if you ask him what did you what did you do today he would never say oh i worked for a few minutes i, I worked for a few hours and then i had lunch and i sleep, like took a nap it's always oh i got up i did this i went there i did that it, it's just so much detail uh, but he would always make it engaging um and i think that's the kind of storyteller he was with my grandmother it was always so my grandmother um, you know grew up in malaysia so when she used to give me uh, when, when she was making lunch for me she would always you know there was there was a little story about how she learned that particular recipe or who she learned this from um with my paternal grandmom she till date i mean it's always about stories of you know how she got how she got to you know from place a to place b what she did and it's you know she's like oh you know i did this and i did that and uh she loves reading a lot of literature as well so she would you know try and like tell me about what's happening in that book um so it's it's always been like that we all like sitting over you know a table and discussing stories so storytelling has always been something i associate with family um and uh, again creativity again so i come from a family of musicians so music has always been a way of life you know it's 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 revered it's very divine but at the same time it's also something we have absolute fun with so you know sometimes we listen to a song on the radio and then my grandmother will you know like pause and say oh you know when when like when i was in bombay and i was like so many years old i heard this song in the radio and then that led to this and then so nothing has ever been consumed without a story in my household so i think for me storytelling has just been something i associate so deeply with family and all the emotions that come around it hey everyone welcome to the closet writer chronicles i'm your host sangeeta aka the moody marshmallow you just heard our guest for today dwani sabesh dwani is a cloud kitchen brand creator for a leading food delivery platform in india a young india fellow from ashoka university she also studied media and culture from the university of london in 2021 she co-authored the children's book parties rasam with her mother janki sabesh published by karadi tales She is passionate about cooking and all things food which she documents on Instagram from time to time. Tune in to hear about Dwani's journey into writing, food and her creative influences. Welcome back to the Closet Writer Chronicles. This week I have with me Dwani Sabesh. Welcome to the show Dwani. It's so good to have you here. Hi Sangeeta, it's great that I'm seeing you after uh, I guess eight years but at least over Zoom but Yeah, it's been great fun from and this is a different change from college. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, for you know, listeners who may not know, uh, I know Dwani from my undergrad. Uh, we were in different departments, but she was my senior in college. Uh, so was I your senior? I always thought you were batchmates. No, Dwani, you're one year older than me. Okay, that that's okay. That's fine. For a second, I felt older than than I currently am. No, no. Building kids are calling me auntie now, so I I I like officially crossed over to the back side. Yes, such is adulting. Uh, sadly, but uh, this this show is not for us to uh, go into that depression of becoming older. <laughs> let's let's not depress our listeners. But um, yeah, I think first off, you know, what is your earliest you know memory of writing? What is like the first thing you ever like sat down and wrote? Whether it was for fun or just like oh, you know, I want to try my hand at this. You know, what was it for you? Yeah. So I. I actually don't have a very clear memory of the first thing I wrote. Uh, I think my earliest memory of writing was my summers at Good Books and those workshops. Um, but I do have very vivid memories of my first few music classes because okay. uh, I think for me creativity has always uh, primarily been associated with music. Uh, yeah. It's because I come from a family of musicians. Um, I come from a family where actually music is beyond an art form. It's something. It's actually a way of life, and right. I always say this in jest, but it's it's very true because um, just to set some context, my uh, on my dad's side, uh, he lost his dad when he was fifteen. So my grandmom was had three kids to bring up, and the only thing she knew was music. So she would take music classes, and you know that's kind of how you know one thing led to another, and everybody kind of got settled in the way she said that. She's like, I helped everybody settle down because of my music. So um, so. For us, music is is um, it's it's not also something that's so divine that you can't touch it, uh, which is why it's very interesting. It's yes, it's very worshipped, it's very sacred, but at the same time, it's also our way of having fun. Like we're sitting together, it's just it's not just like an antakshi, right? We're like trying to find this song and that song. And so for me, I remember my uh, first music class, and my mother, being my mother, has also recorded it. So there's a three-year-old me squeaking. <laughs> you know, there's like a frequency pushy box here, and I'm just like. somewhere else on a different planet but so i think for me uh, that's my earliest memory uh, and i think it was always a constant not like a north star but sort of like a line that just runs through your life and you do anything in parallel like music's just there mm. uh, so music has always been there and then through music i also realized that um, everybody in my family uh, my immediate family everyone has a parallel creative track and i when you were uh, you know when i was thinking about this i realized that everybody like there's someone who's a musician i have somebody who writes uh, somebody who writes in different languages it's always been like that at home so a lot of creativity was just seeing everybody jam on on a table and say okay let's do this let's do that uh, my dad has this uh, really hilarious habit where he would uh, take any fa- uh, you know famous song bollywood mm-hmm. song or any film song that i i really liked Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would twist the lyrics. He would sing the lyrics in reverse and gibberish. And uh, I remember there was a we used to have power cuts and so like Madras of like nineteen eighty three and before there were power cuts and stuff. And I remember my dad wrote a song about how it's it's not wrote a song but he gave like really funny lyrics to Mukabla and that's what yeah. we would sing to entertain ourselves when the band was not working and really funny things like that. So yeah, I think creativity has meant so many different things that it's been very difficult to point out to one. one specific thing right so uh yeah it's all of these memories like you just can't my like my granddad for instance he was obsessed with the newspaper and his biggest thing 
for me was uh, I had to read the newspaper every day. He would okay. conduct a quiz for me every Sunday to see how well I read the week's paper. Oh wow! I was okay. six. I was six. Just just making that very clear. Okay, so, <laughs> and I used to go and ask him, Tata, what is this? Tata, what is that? And he launched it. He's and he used to work in the publishing industry, so he had yeah. an impeccable vocabulary, and he had this big booming baritone, uh, and did not. It's slightly hard of hearing in one year, so he didn't realize how loud he was. With this booming voice, he'd explain. So much before we started learning, uh, you know, political science in school, yeah. I was just very well equipped and I was fully prepared to show off that, yes, my tata has taught me like this. So, yeah, with all of this, it's, it's just been like this massive uh, avial. I can't even think of any other word. I don't even like avial. But it is like one big avial. You know, there's just everything there. And uh, that's what it's always been. But then, uh, what is then your okay? Like you started music, and we'll get into the avial part of it because food is a big part of this <laughs> coming up. But uh, you know what is then? You know when did you even attempt to just you know write a word? Was it then just English classes? Was it you know when was? Yeah, it? I think um, I think there was a point where uh, so my mom's always been uh, this. She's always been the kind of person who would get herself involved in multiple activities. Okay. And they had a few immediate goals for me, which was they realized that I love to talk. Uh, there are okay. multiple instances of people who met me as a two-year-old saying, you know, if I would find a mic or I would pretend that anything was a mic and just like talk into it even if it was absolute gibberish. <laughs> so um, I think that's when my parents recognized. So, uh, you know, that there were some things that I could be put into. So music, of course, was, was a given. Uh, there was dance class because I remember someone coming and saying that if I choose to sing tomorrow on stage, I shouldn't be ha- like, you know, at least have like a pleasant face to look at, okay. you know, just holding, holding a posture and, you know, being sort of for want of a better phrase, I'd say prim and proper okay. and not being an eyesore to the audience. Okay. Uh, that was the, that was the reasoning I was given for Bharatanatyam classes. Okay. So there was music, there was Bharatanatyam and um, yeah, I just loved doing these things. I would enact stuff at home and, so I was put into theater. So there was, um, I was with the little theater for okay. about three years before exams became a feature of my life. Um, so that was there. And it was all about like getting over stage fright. And somewhere along this, um, uh, I think the writing happened. And I realized actually a catalyst for the writing was my mom's colleague at work, uh, Sudhanti, who okay. I till date refer to her as the tooth fairy. Uh, tooth fairy. Because uh, she wrote my note when my first tooth fell off and I recognized her handwriting. Oh. Because my mom thought, my mom's like, this one's clever. She's going to find this out. But no, I still like, found out that it was a dentist. But anyway, um, so I remember she telling my mother, um, my mom used to work uh, on with an ad, like with a production house at that time. And I used to go with her sometimes to her office place and apparently serve everybody pretend tea because that's the first thing people say to me. Uh, so she would keep me in this room and she would just say Chanki throw books around her she just went, she'll get bored and she would pick up a book so I had these books called Tatty Ted I don't okay. know if you've ever read they were these board books about this teddy bear called Tatty okay. um, and Tatty Ted would go fishing and they had a little lovely little uh, red briefcase of its own okay. so I remember discovering books through that and then there was I went through a very very long phase where it would be impossible to peel me away from a book okay and I think somewhere around that is when I, I started like creating stories of my own mm-hmm. uh, and good books was just there at like perfect timing, right? I was right place at the right time. Good books mm. was there. There were these workshops for children. 
um and i think one i had a very nice english teacher in school her name was vasudha vasudha miss um, who was from my mother that this one writes you know you should try, try and find her give her opportunities to write so everything just aligned at the right time but uh, my earliest memories of writing are in good books which was this lovely bookstore in chennai uh, that had workshops for children mm-hmm. and my mother had signed me up for a writing workshop with this amazing woman uh, the journalist called sandhya rao Mm-hmm. um so sandhya aunty uh, you know she taught us how to use our words and write stories and uh, um and and her focus on grammar what whatever i write today full credit to sandhya aunty i think she's just been that person who's who's helped me write so just workshops after workshops i think i i wonder if it was also a way for my parents to keep me occupied when they had other things to do but even <laughs> if it was very grateful to them uh, yeah. because i my parents i think it just comes back to my family being so creative right that it's just a given that okay you need to be occupied with being creative stuff like i've i was forced to go for sports coaching once in my life and i hated it because i'm not a sports person and yeah. i would just play that off any day like badminton coaching i'd be sitting in the corner reading a book so okay it was like that stuff like that so i think i think that's just where everything came together mm mm-hmm. that's no that's really interesting because i think even for me like my first memory of writing is actually just english classes in school it's actually english exams i used to enjoy writing my english exams in school like especially the essay how old were you when you had your first exam i must have been like i mean we used to have those tests like when i was in first second standard on but i think proper exams must have been like i guess like sixth standard onwards or something i think like fifth sixth standard onwards and i very distinctly remember like especially in high school like for me english exams used to be very therapeutic especially those english two papers because i know that we essay writing and i'd leave it for the last because for me i don't know i used to be very relaxed doing it <laughs> i would take my time writing because i was having fun also doing it and i i it didn't feel like an exam for me but obviously you don't think that oh this could potentially become a career at some point in your life <laughs> but yeah, yeah. so no it's just it's just fun to hear you know people stories of how they first even get into something creative or you know with words you know so to speak um but having said that you know you spoke about books um which are like some writers or stories then that have really impacted you because i feel like everyone who is creative or who isn't or who doesn't even claim to be creative does have like certain stories that do impact them or stay with them uh, to some degree so what are those for you so when it goes sort of backwards from recent to back in time so um some books in the recent like past 5 years that have really really left uh, a very big mark on me one was purple hibiscus uh, yeah. by richie yeah um there was just something so beautiful about the way uh, she explored the concept of of just greenness mm. where you can have somebody who's so loving but who's also so terrible mm. and not in a sort of I tend, I see that we tend to go into uh, polarities. We try and go very mm-hmm. black and white, right? So someone's yeah. so abusive, someone's so this. But this, from the eyes of a child, uh, you know, and someone who's just growing up, I found mm-hmm. that very, very beautiful. Uh, the illicit happiness of other people. Uh, okay. I the character of Thoma is just such a like I'm, I'm having goosebumps on him whenever I talk about that character. So beautiful, and the fact that it was. I I have my heart is always in Madras. So whenever I find like mentions of Madras in any book, I just become like extra extra happy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, with that book being said, um, one book that really really moved me, and I think I've not had it in me to come back for a second read. Um, 
is is one of the books that really shaped the way I think about a lot of things. Is M and the Big Who by Jerry Pinto. It's it's a stunning book, and I I don't think anybody has spoken about mental health with the kind of um, fragility and clarity at the same time the way he has. It's such a beautiful book. I think these were the three books in the past few years that I've you know always like held on to. Um, I was also reading uh, a bunch of other things. I mean, obviously Harry Potter has yeah. always been. <laughs> that that one defining moment in my life where i would like get the book the day stand in queue at landmark get your book come back read it not take anything away and then read it again for the next yeah. few days there was that um roll dal i love roll dal i think which is which is in charlie and the chocolate factory i think yeah which is is always my top book um, mm. and not just because it has a scene in the restaurant but uh, <laughs> i think charlie and the chocolate factory of course which is um and then there were a lot of books uh you know in between that i just sort of constantly kept uh picking up and reading and figuring something out from it uh over and over again i used to sneak up and read sydney sheldon because i wasn't allowed to it was okay. it was not pg13 right yeah. so i used <laughs> yeah. to read sydney sheldon and then my dad used to give me these books that he read when he was in college okay. and then um yeah stuff like that i'm actually now struggling to think of other books Uh, but I love the list of books you gave. Uh, I've not read some of them, so I'm really looking forward to checking those out for sure. Um, especially the one by Jerry Pinto, which you mentioned. Uh, oh, it's a stunning book. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that all your experiences have contributed to this big abyss of creativity, uh, which comes to food. Then, <laughs> because I know, uh, and I know, I've seen you post recipes. I've seen you like post. um you know personal stories attached to food and you know making dishes and you know your experiments with them um and of course you know you have like a public instagram page where you predominantly post about food but i've seen you post mo- mostly about that um how did your interest in you know food begin and you know when did you start you know sort of cooking getting into it and then you know saying hey you know maybe i could you know just post about my experiences with it like how did that happen um So, like I said, family again. Uh, we are the kind of family that will be on the dining table eating one meal and planning our next couple of meals. It's always been that way. Um, and uh, my uncle, that's my dad's brother, and my mom's mm-hmm. sister are excellent cooks. But my biggest influence has been my grandmother. Uh, mm. I grew up with her right across the road, and uh, I mean, obnoxious as it sounds, I used to decide which house I would go to after school, whether it's my parents' house or my grandparents' house, based on the menu of the day. Wow. So. <laughs> Invariably, my party always won there. There is, and uh, and my party had a very interesting story because uh, so we're like we're somewhat Palakkad, we're somewhat Tamil, uh, but my party grew up in Malaysia, so she would oh. always tell me stories. So she would make these very interesting uh, dishes for me, um, and you know everything was always accompanied by a story saying, oh you know, so there was something she used to make called tauke. Uh, yeah. and it's a sprouts curry uh, and she used to say you know she used to always serve that to me and tell me the story of how her mother learned it from some neighbor in malaysia and then they made it and you know things like that and my grandfather used to always say you know so my party's name was sarasa okay. so he said anybody can cook but only sarasa can cook with love oh uh, and he used to always say that and you know she used to always do these little little things for me so uh it became very central like i used to always joke you know i could have eaten a buffet somewhere and i'll enter my party house and i'd be hungry again so i think party was the biggest influence uh in just in terms of what food could mean right because mm-hmm. she loved food and the other thing she loved was books 
so she was either cooking or reading so it was always very it was a very nice uh, and she loved discussing books with me and she okay. would in fact like sneak me money and say can you get this so for my school from my school library i used to get her sydney sheldon's back for her and get another book for myself and we yeah. used to do things like that so it was very nice um so somewhere i think i uh, i maybe subconsciously because i don't actively remember spending too much time with my party cooking i remember most of my time eating and like hearing her stories uh, and she passed when we were when i just about started college uh, which okay. I, i i honestly wish it stayed on for a long for, for longer because i think you're you know when you're switching from school to college is when you're that angsty teenager who doesn't want anything to do with anybody mm. um, and i i definitely wish she'd been around for more because uh, you know i think she would have enjoyed a lot more of what's happening in you know just food in general and just yeah. the way i cook now mm. um so it started there and um my earliest memory of of cooking so my dad's an excellent cook as well mom also cooks my my uncles are cook um mm. was and i have a photo of this as well as my dad teaching me how to cut a potato hey wow okay how to, how to hold the knife and how to cut it and all of that and once i remember you know um saying i'm going to make there was some some vegetable i didn't like i think it was avial for all i know and i wanted to make myself a potato curry and i didn't want anybody else to know and silly child i must have been 10 or younger at that point i cut a potato and like raw raw potatoes raw turmeric raw everything and i mixed it thinking i can eat and obviously it tasted like crap and that's when i realized i need to learn how to cook uh, a lot of it came from observation but i think yeah. the biggest switch for me was actually master chef Okay um, yeah there was something and i remember the first season to come on tv uh, in india was master chef season 2 the okay. one with marian and everybody and i remember watching that and it 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 really opened up my my brain in a way where i was like oh my god you can do so much with food like i you watch sanjeev kapoor like every sunday i used to watch sanjeev kapoor rakesh sethi like these host of indian chefs and dalal dalal and you know i had these dalal dalal books at home which i would always want to watch and i'd sit on the counter top when my mom made a pulao i've done all of that but there was something so um so pivotal about master chef because mm. it actually gave me a very different perspective on food okay because still then you're very used to your idea of western food like because yeah. it's indian and western like how we divide music which is so which is so weird when we say mm. indian music and western music and if that's not indian it's just western right um, <laughs> yeah and, and and sort of was always limited to a pasta that my mom would make or some somebody else would make and then yeah. you learn these things and then the internet also kind of opened up at the right time i think mm. for us and uh, i discovered nigella and you know she was one of the first people i was like oh my god Yeah. This is so cool. She's somebody who's just making incredible food, and one thing led to another. Cookbooks, and I actually don't remember when. Like there was, I, I'm I'm fairly certain there was a switch that was flipped where you went from just like being in the background to being like center stage mm-hmm. at uh, with food. But yeah, it just happened. And uh, my mom always tells me that um, you know my dad always makes fun of my memory. He says you remember too many things. You remember things I wish you wouldn't remember also. but my mom once noticed that all my memories are related to food like i remember something that happened at that particular moment because of what we were eating which is mm. really funny when you think about it um so all of that i think just sort of came together very well um was in college i think you had more time to do things and it just happened uh, it sounds sounds a bit cliche but it just happened i I don't remember. I remember things of like getting used to get these um, pre-mixed packets of you know fried rice and manchurian. I think it was nor 
So okay. I remember doing like Mother's Day dinners and Father's Day dinners wow. with with basic stuff like this, and always complaining how it never tasted the way I wanted it to taste. And then it sort of just built. Um, and I did the Young India Fellowship. Yeah. Uh, after right out of college, and mm-hmm. that's one program which sort of really it um it's it's focused a lot about making you look inward. So I mm. became uh, better friends with myself and realizing okay. what I liked and what I didn't like. Okay. Uh, where I realized that food has always been, you know, the central passion. Like there was mess khana uh, down at the, you know, the hostel. Mm. But I would steal like a boiled egg. I would have like couscous in my room, and everybody okay. from Bayan remembers. And so I used to cook couscous and boiled egg and whatever like quick things I could do without a flame because I didn't want to eat the mess mess food. <laughs> yeah. And now when I think back, it's a stupid like why would you do that? But that's also I think just where your my brain is always working. Like even now mm. I'm. Like this morning, I was grocery shopping, and you're staring at things, and you're like, "Okay, brain is working," and just connecting multiple dots. So I do things that that happened because I connected with myself a lot more, and just realized how intrinsic it is mm. uh, to my being. Um, okay. I've just lucked out, uh, you know, you know, in the sense that my career has also taken me in in a sense, you know, to the place where I am working with food day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think everything just fell fell into place very nicely. Uh, when I and then somebody gifted me my best friend actually gifted me a cookbook for my birthday and then okay. I started that one cookbook has now become forty cookbooks I just wow. like, collect cookbooks go like collect recipes sit with people find out it's just it's become my way of connecting with people but most importantly myself so I think that's in short not a very short answer of <laughs> how food came into my life no but that's really uh, interesting to hear and you know just listening. you know your journey with it and how foods become such a big part of it and you know i was just thinking and there was a lot i resonated with just in terms of because my maternal grandmother uh, was an excellent cook you know uh, and i and it's like you associate memories with food sometimes uh, like a lot of my memories of her is around food and is around books as, as well in fact she's the one who got me into reading so you know i attribute a lot of my love for words and stories to her so you know that i could really resonate when you were talking about you know your grandmother and food and books and i was like oh my god i completely like get it or i don't know if it's a grandmother thing also but it is possible maybe it's a grandmother thing and uh, so i've been reading uh, uh, masala lab right by krishna shokin okay, he talks yeah. about how uh, a lot of our sense of taste and we say oh this doesn't taste like that he says we don't understand what a what a huge role memory plays when we're tasting mm-hmm. something so it's at that moment your experience so like for example something that i make from my grandmom's book uh now i'm a little more convinced that it tastes like hers mm. uh, so i'm going to narrate a little funny it's an it's an anecdote from uh from my childhood right so she used to make this uh, uh make this karambu it's a thaire based karambu called uh, it's called molugu karambu in my house so it's okay. just like lots of curd and pepper and it's always something that we all grown up having and we had bad stomachs okay and so once i had a bad stomach my grandmom my grandparents used to live in delhi before they moved uh, to chennai and my mom called my grandmom and said listen honey wants to eat this can you please uh, give me the recipe so she noted down the recipe and i think mom and dad set out to make this for me mm. now because i was already with an upset stomach and i was like a child i was given metrojil the syrup which mm. is a disgusting yellow horrendous syrup <laughs> as most syrups are and it was this really watery thing and i think my parents didn't get the ratio right so okay. they made a very watery molugu karambu for me and i remember the first, taking a look at it and the first thing i did was place an std call which 
you know at that time making an escape yeah. was a big deal to delhi and crying to my grandmother saying my parents don't know how to cook like you they've made me metrogen Oh my god so so till date that corn was referred to as metrogen in my house oh, and god. and this is the kind of stuff right like i my it's like my parents always say that you know i am this really finicky person i'm a picky eater not because i don't eat things but because i expect a, a sense of perfection in everything <laughs> so which is i grandmothers spoil us true um you know let's talk about parties rasam because i know one of the inspirations or possibly the main inspiration behind that is your grandmother and her cooking um how did that book uh, come about uh, for listeners who don't know parties rasam is this uh, children's book that dwani has co-authored with her mother janki sabesh um and i will let you talk about it more you know what the book is how the idea came about and you know talk to us about the process of writing it and just being published and now that it's out how do you how do you feel um so my mom's a storyteller and uh, more than being a storyteller my mother is um she's like an idea machine okay uh, and i mean this in the nicest way possible because you know we could just be sitting and suddenly you see her eyes just like widen and it's like she's got an idea uh, okay. and she's just full of ideas no matter what we do she just she's so creative right so um one such trip i think she was in Nagaland she'd gone for a children's literature festival and mm-hmm. I get a call and this is a very rickety bus that's taking her from I think from Kohima to uh I want to say Imphal but I'm not sure where no sorry Kohima I think they were driving down somewhere to the nearest airport okay I'm not sure where it was uh but yeah she was driving around Kohima on a rickety bus and I get a call with Patchy network and says honey I've got an idea I said yes ma what's the idea and she says I want to write a story about this little girl who loves eating her parties rasam and then her party dies and the rasam uh, recipe is gone as well and what does she do after okay and for me and i'm say, uh, i'm having goosebumps while saying it because the my most favorite thing that party used to always make for me is rasam and uh, so she passed in 2011 and for some reason i've never been able to like rasam as much as like i used to then rasam became mm-hmm. one of my lesser favorite foods um and i realized now that where it probably came from because it was never like parties yeah uh, and i was like wow okay mom's first book had just come out and this was sort of like she was going for these fests with her first book which was about uh, the jungle storytelling festival mm. and uh, the other person who was there with her on the trip was shobha vishnuadha tarady deals so okay. after telling me the idea she told shobha aunty the idea and shobha aunty said just write it okay. that was i think in 2000 17 or 18 and okay. we're in 2022 the book came out in 2021 <laughs> it took us a long time uh, yeah. to actually come to the book uh, uh, you know write the book because we struggled so we had the idea mm. uh, but we didn't have a story uh, and and you realize that this is a great idea but how do you translate that idea into a story and uh, we've written i think 25 drafts when you, yeah. I mean, you think about it right it's 300 words effectively mm. you need to write and that's when you realize how brevity is such an such a undervalued skill like mm. being able to communicate with brevity mm. because how do you what, what are the themes you want you want to convey in this what mm. is it that you want and is it a personal story what do you want to do with it like there are so many questions and i think we struggled the most with figuring out a logic because we were so close to the story ourselves right we kept yeah. writing versions which were very similar to what had happened with my grandmother where she actually fallen sick a couple of months before she passed 
and then we realize that for us that's a very important story but for a child sitting and reading this outside does that really hold value right and you also need to kind of signal to the parent because there's a parent who's going to be reading this to a child at some point yeah um and then okay you've got that part then how do you make it end like one of our first our earliest endings of was this of this was that she makes a rasam and then she realizes that the magic ingredient was love and then we looked at each other and we said do we really want to do something this vanilla like it's cliche there's nothing wrong with it but it doesn't inspire mm. um so shobanti was a great help i mean she's somebody uh, who kind of we went to her with multiple drafts and she was like no this is not working and this is why it's not working mm. so going through that entire process to finally come to this book which is party's rasam which is about this little girl who you know who loves her party's rasam and then her party dies and the recipe goes away and what she does uh when we also re- when we were closer to coming like hitting the note with the right draft um mm-hmm. something that happened was um uh, a very close friend of ours lost her father mm-hmm. and um her daughter you know mm-hmm. just went through a series of emotions because she had lost a grandparent okay and she just didn't know what uh, what she could do and we realized and of course this child is much older than malli who is uh, the protagonist of our book uh she was about 10 or 11 we realized that we don't talk to adults to get children we don't talk about grief the way we ought to yeah, right um true. because um i mean even even i don't think i've spoken about the grief of losing my grandmother as well yeah. uh, as as much as i should have or or even felt it in, in very weird ways like you realize how you feel it in like with the passage of time but at that yeah. moment like i don't remember crying as much when my grandma passed away but it's it's hit me later in waves you know you miss yeah. her at that moment and mm. just talking about how grief is sort of uh, yeah. i think someone recently posted it grief is all the love that you cannot give yeah um and or or about how you grow around your grief and i think talking to children about it especially you know because when you were revising this is also when the pandemic hit and mm. then you realize that there is a sudden sense like it's a bit of grief in overdrive because it's not just the grief of family but so many people and just like yes we may not have known everybody who's who's who we've lost to the pandemic but there is a certain sense of grief that i think all of us hold about just something so terrible and something so you know and then now there's a war and there's so many things and we realize yeah. that you need to talk about grief so yeah. that's when we actually got a lot more direction about how do you say things about grief without saying much and realizing that there are bits and pieces of people uh, you can hold on to and uh, to quote Harry Potter I think the people who you love never really leave, never really leave you and yeah. how you choose to hold on to them so uh yeah so that that's actually how uh, the book finally materialized so it's nice and in this case the idea that my mom had was very central about food I mean this could have been party's notebook for all you for mm. you know, for all you wanted and there would have been a different way of maybe the notebook was missing and you find the notebook mm. but the idea it just came naturally to us because this we were still you know definitely carrying forward a lot of what we felt with my grandmom at that point so yeah. that's how the book came but that that's amazing and you know the fact that it's finally out uh, i'm yet to read it uh, i have placed my order so i'm hoping that it comes soon and i'm able to read it i hope you like it yeah i i yeah i'm really looking forward to it because i feel like children's books in general today are so much deeper than you know i feel like people are just like oh but it's a kids book who cares but i feel like there's a lot more depth today especially in i think children's publishing and you know just the books coming out but even if you yeah. look at books from before like 
like one book I read um, last year uh, was The Little Prince by uh, Anton de Saint-Exupéry, which is like a very old children's book, but is so relevant today. And um, yes. it's like an, he talks about the human condition through like a fantasy story, which is for kids, but honestly, adults can read it too. So really Absolutely. looking forward to reading your book as well. Yeah. But, you know, having said that, what was it like working with your mother? <laughs> because... Um, <laughs> Because I feel like see, a working relationship with your parent can be a very tricky place to be because either, see, I'm sure like people have a lot of fun working with their parents, but sometimes like, is it easy to separate personal from professional with a parent? Like, do you just have fights sometimes and be like, oh my God, you're just not getting what I'm saying. And, or do you just agree to disagree? Was it like challenging or was it just really smooth on the whole to work with her? Okay, so I feel like to answer this question, I need to like, take a minute to set yeah, context yeah. about my relationship with my mother. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Obviously, growing up, my parents were very strict parents and, you know, all of that is there. But some, I think like uh, a switch flipped again when we were 16 and then my mom's my best friend. It's always mm-hmm. been that way. We just, like we fight, We, but she's like my best friend. Like I can't go a day without talking to her. Like every morning, even if I'm talking to her for five minutes, that needs to happen. So because we have this really friendly relationship, it obviously leads to you're not listening to me. Can you listen to me? At some level, you forget that who's the parent and who's the who's the child. If if you if you ask my mother, I'm very sure she'd be like, "Don't ever work with honey unless you know what you want." Because my biggest problem is that I have patience for everybody in the world except for myself and my mom. So I am deeply impatient. I also tend to set very high standards for myself for mm. no for no reason at all. Mm. Um, and the third is. Uh, I'm just impatient. Like, I just want things done then and there. Mm-hmm. And if it's not happening, like, my impatience leads to that frustration and that high standards, and it just goes in this big loop. Uh, thankfully, we had uh, a calming force in Shobanti because we knew that, okay, at a certain time, the, you know, this, at a certain time, you need to send a draft to her, which is mm-hmm. the manuscript. So there was a clear deliverable. Thank God we had that. Uh, it was also helpful because I knew that in this case, the idea was my mother's and I was translating the idea into a story. Right. And obviously we were doing it together. I I think had she had, uh, maybe had we had the story clear in our heads, it might right. have been an easier process. Mm. Uh, but um, because of the distinction of you have the idea, let's see how you can translate. Mm. And that was a distinction that just sort of naturally came into place. Um mm it was still easier than I guess it would have been. The plenty of arguments, it's got, it's ended with me just getting off the table and saying, you know what, I don't want to see your face for the next half an hour. But hey, you're in the middle of a pandemic. The three of you are in the same house. So like stay in one corner of the room, you're in the other corner of the room, meet again in half an hour. Yeah. So, or just like go to the terrace where nobody else is there, take a walk because you want fresh air. So <laughs> all of that happened. But yeah, Will I do it again? Yes, I definitely will do it again with mom. Uh, we've realized what we need, the, the amount of clarity that you need to write, right? Yeah. Because ultimately this is 300 words. Mm. So we've written drafts that were as much as 2,500 words long mm. just to get the story right. Okay. And then you sit and shave and shave and shave and shave and shave. And what we also don't realize and what I, mom, my mother realizes a little more because she's already written one picture book for children okay. is a lot that you say in children's books, uh, I think, need to be said without saying it. Uh, okay. Leave some 
basically needs to be a little more implicit there is like for okay. example my one of my drafts spent about i would say 100 words just describing the kitchen and how she would go on the kitchen counter top and look at this okay and then you realize your illustrator and your story reporter will just make that happen so that shaves up 100 words of contract uh, right that's okay. more of like descriptive direction um and also just going back to what you were saying like children's literature today is a lot more um you find that the books are a lot deeper today yeah. that's also because children i find like children today are way smarter maybe like the previous True. generation felt that about us when we were growing up True. but like one of my friends um seven year olds like i spoke to her the other day and she was telling me i said so how are you doing today she said i'm doing very terribly i didn't know this i didn't know how to speak like this when i was six and then i said what happened and she said no you know it's just uh, i had a sty the other day now i have a cold what an exhausting life to have and then she wow. just walks off from the video call frame and i was like oh wow and she was the other thing that she said to me i wanted to like she was like making watermelon juice one day and like can i have and she said what to be 10 pence she's reading and it like so i said i don't have 10 pence okay you can buy this on credit i'm learning what credit is now like wow. so <laughs> you know and and they ask very uh, deep questions and they know yeah. a lot more and True. i think we've also this particular generation of kids i find them being very great at communicating mm. like for instance and i think we've also uh, i think their parents have made an emphasis on like use your words yeah. i see my cousins saying this a lot to their children you know mm. when they're just like throwing a tantrum they're like i don't know what's going on use your words tell me what's happening so okay. the fact that you're giving them the agency to speak yeah uh, also means that the way they consume your book is going to be different because True. they're going to ask questions they're going to um so i remember one draft when we wrote this and there was a massive logical flaw that we hadn't seen in we like no who's this kid and they're like no the, ch- the child will point this saying but why but why but why like children today i think are negotiating more they're asking questions so in that situation right i think you need to assume that you are writing for a very very intelligent reader yeah and a reader who is going to ask questions that you couldn't have even thought of right so just how much you leave unsaid is also very important and this was something shobanti had taught us she said you know kids are yeah. very very they're very perceptive oh. let them ask questions you know you want you want this to start a conversation right you want this to talk about you know but why but why mm. like why didn't she do this why didn't she do that why is she sad and things like that so yeah i think that's that's been a huge huge learning curve with this book oh that's really um, interesting to hear you know and um, yeah i think children's publishing is in a very interesting space today so it, it's really it's really intriguing to see the subjects you know people are coming out with and talking about Absolutely. and writing writing about it it's because there's this one publisher i came across which is uh by an indian lady who's based in the uk it's called uh, groggy eyes and where she mm-hmm. talks about like different issues uh for chil- her name sangeeta mole so she she talks about again you know losing a grandparent grief and you know she touches upon like like body positivity for children like it's just incredible to see these topics come out for kids today and you really you know sometimes think you know man i wish i could have read about these things when i was growing up it would have made such a big difference so i fully agree i i think empathy um driving that home to children like now at this particular like when they're younger is is so much nicer because i grew up with uh you know i grew up being bullied for a lot of things and i know a lot of people did and i think a lot of it just comes from maybe you know if you understand the other person better you're probably not mm. going to be as mean or say things mm. you know that are as nasty mm. so yeah and 
you know, and another thing for me, which which was very very fulfilling with this book was the fact that it was Kardi Tales because mm. um, you know one of the other earliest books that I've picked up have always been Kardi Tales. I yeah. used to you know the Blue Jackal was my favorite. I can still sing uh, you know the songs <laughs> in my sleep. Um, mm. You know, with like the tapping of the bamboo cane and you you know turn the page and it felt like this big activity. You know, you play that and you can do this completely. I don't need help to read. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that you know it's come back to Kardi Tales is just so wonderful. Yeah, it, it was very, it was very nice little. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's beautiful when that happens, right? And I think that's the beauty of life. You just have no idea when things come full circle with some things, like so. Absolutely. Which is just amazing, and and it's really beautiful to hear that also. Uh, but yeah, I think you know, you know, talking about these topics for kids and all, and also I think shifting gears a bit because, um, you know, talking about this, uh, I know. You've openly spoken about vitiligo, which is a condition I know you 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 you're going through as you have, um, yes. and you've openly spoken about it. And I personally do have a lot of respect for the fact that you know you were able to talk about it with so much of you know honesty, vulnerability, and also just a lot of dignity and grace. Honestly speaking, you, you did, and I, I remember I even uh, messaged you when you did post about it. I ha- I don't know if you have any memory of this, but uh, I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> Thank you. But, but yeah, I remember reaching out to you and saying that, you know, like more power to you for even talking about this and sharing this because these conversations just aren't there, you know, and it's important to have people come out and talk about it, um, you know, but for the benefit of listeners, you know, um, could you tell us what vitiligo is, first of all, um, what your experience has been like with the condition, you know, just accepting it, going with it and, you know, also just openly talking about it, what that's been like for you. Um, thank you. I, I, I've been told that it takes a certain amount of bravery, but I think it, it, maybe it does. But it's also, I think, I would hope that there is one day where talking about it isn't considered brave. Which is exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I was diagnosed when I was in eleventh. Though mm. I think I was seeing some patches and trying to hide them uh, from when I was in class nine. So we're talking about almost like. From, from the point of diagnosis, almost 15 years. Um, but um, in effect, vitiligo is a condition where um, your uh, your skin your skin color producing cells, which is your melanocytes that produce the melanin, um, they are suppressed. So they effectively end up not producing uh, the melanin. So you end up having white patches on your skin. Uh, so that, that is in short uh, what vitiligo is. And um, I think for me, the first few years were really not as difficult because they were always in places that were very well hidden. Nobody right. could see it because it was on my back or on my chest or on my stomach. And I'm like, who's going to see this? It doesn't make a difference. And then there was a time where it started coming on my hands, uh, like on my fingers. That's when there was a little bit of uh, flux, I'd say, in my head because like, what does this mean for me? Um, see, I think... For me personally, a lot of my bullying uh, that happened in school was uh, just on the basis of how I looked because I was a right. size, I was a bit chubby, etc., etc. So even if nobody explicitly said something, you're always in that thing of, oh my God, somebody's going to say something about this. Yeah. You know, so nobody has ever given me shit for my skin in that sense. Like I've never been bullied for my skin, but it's something you intern. It's, it's not self-censorship, but um, I'm just giving self-censorship as an analogy because yeah, you yeah. tend to like say, oh, you know, someone's looking at you this way etc etc you realize that so much of your um 
your perception of yourself and your perception of your self worth uh, you place in the hands of other people yeah. so i think reclaiming that uh, was a huge uh, was a huge, i won't say task because i don't think i actively worked towards it it just mm. happened one day um, but i think i went through a bunch of treatments then i realized i i didn't have a particularly good experience with one particular treatment because they use a lot of phototherapy and uv light and there was one particular um, treatment set, uh, sitting that went wrong and i ended up having uh, some clinical burns on on my patches and i was just like no i'm not doing this anymore i'm happy with the way i am i will deal with this later um so that was there uh, and around that time was um, so i kind of like left the treatment part of it behind um what actually really made me talk about this was um, again children are amazing so i have my nephew his name is abhay but mm-hmm. this little kid in my life abhay he's he's incredibly special to me so um, and he loves books so i remember sitting and reading to him and i noticed that this guy is always looking at my hands so i remember asking him like hey abhay like what's happening and i i was like preparing myself for okay, he's going to say something and he's like what's that on your skin so and abhay was what five or six at this point so i was like thinking of how do you explain this to a seven year old a six year old and i said my immune system is basically eating up uh, you know my skin producing cells and he said why he said it's like they think that they're the bad guys and his first his first answer was like does it hurt when they eat because he it's some something yeah. eating something right so yeah. i was i was already melting at that point i was like oh no abhay it doesn't hurt and then he said oh, he just looked at me and then i remember his words and he said uh, you know i think it's really cool you get to have two skin colors at once yeah and and that moment for me was just damn i've never seen it that way yeah. you always see it as as a fault and not as something positive to have mm-hmm. um and I, i i this was what 5 6 years ago and for me it was an instant switch that just like flipped and it it seems a bit uh, weird to say it this way but it actually happened you know from that moment the way i looked at it just changed because it became it becomes more of an asset than a liability i guess in yeah. many ways even though it had never been something that was weighing me down too much um so i think after that i realized just how much um it made such a positive impact and i think i i, I wanted to tell that story of how you know children you know it's so lovely because they're at a stage where you know things don't bother them and maybe yeah. you realize that maybe at age 6 you know who nobody teaches you to bully someone like these are learned behaviors yeah and it's a learned behavior because there is a certain way where it's an invisible rule literally that you have to look and behave a certain way because how else will children as young as 7 and 8 actually even start saying things to each other right yeah um so around that time is when uh, dushyant of kriyashakti was working on a series of monologues for this uh, for the play called dolls and we were just talking about this and i was telling him the story and he said no they should go on stage and theater has been something i've done on and off so uh so she said why don't you write a monologue so i wrote my monologue it was uh, it was very cathartic for me i think that's when i realized you know in that journey of telling the story you have to focus on the downs as well and you realize that well no one's ever come and said something to you uh, you know you could be in a meeting and you notice someone staring at your hands you you don't blame them because i probably would have done the same thing but um sort of making it okay f- it's okay for you to come and ask and i remember uh, a bunch of uh, advocates for disability disability rights right um 
I, I follow them on Instagram and they said things like, you know, if, if someone's asking, because I remember uh, they were narrating another story about a child seeing somebody, uh, you know, a double amputee on a wheelchair and saying, why doesn't he have legs? Mm. It's just curiosity. They're not being yeah. mean. Yeah. You know, and I think by saying, Shh, don't talk about it, you're actually making it a more of a taboo. But yeah. You, see, you, just, you can come and ask me because it's yeah. very natural. So yeah. sort of just letting people know that it's okay to ask as long as yeah. you're not being, ew, what is that? Yeah, what yeah. is that is always better than you what is that right so yeah. um so that's when the monologue came across and uh i mean so it came about and uh wrote it and it, it it worked very well for me because uh for me personally it was catharsis and i noticed a lot of people uh you know coming in talking to me about it and saying it helped me or you know saying i'm glad because it's, it's i'm glad you're saying this and i remember i remember a couple of people coming and saying how you know it gave them some amount of courage and it was nice for me, you know, the fact that yeah. me sharing my story could have an impact. Yeah. Um, so that was about it. And mm. once the play came about, I realized that not everybody has access to it. And that was around the time where, you know, my public Instagram was, is, as you know, I'm not very inconsistent. I'm not very consistent <laughs> in posting there. So I decided I might just talk about it as well. Mm. Uh, because I remember some someone had said something very, like, not very nice, I think. Something okay. about how I claim to be exotic by having some, I don't even remember this, but oh. so there was some trigger. Somebody had said something like that. And I just, again, extreme anger <laughs> wrote something and, and then it just came about. And um, that really helped. I had a couple of people reach out to me. There were little children who came and spoke to me and said, you know, because it's actually a lot more common than we think. There's actually a very interesting article. I forget the platform that the article is on, but um, I'll never forget the headline. It's called The Dapple Dilemma facing vitiligo signs which is basically that um you know right now you have somebody like Winnie Harlow who's right. just like owning her patches and, and it's a lot about body positivity because hey yes you can be who you want to be you can look any way you want they should not stop you but at the same time like for, for science to sort of move ahead right they want to like for want of a better word treat it now the same when you see when you treat something as a condition you're you're, you're kind of acknowledging that there's a problem that requires to be treated. Right. But today you're you're very conscious of not addressing it as a problem. Mm. So like, how do you do, like, what do you do? Like, even recently, I think as as, as recent as a week ago, uh, someone told us about a doctor who's in Pune, who, you know, who just, people just meet him and then stops the spread. And I'm, I'm going through that right now saying, do I want to just meet this doctor to see what they have to say? Or does it go against the whole thing of, oh, like, no, I'm body positive. I am very yeah. positive about how it is. So I think there's this, like, the more we have these conversations, yeah. the more we're able to, like, because it, this is a conundrum at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay to have that. Like, it's perfectly yeah. okay if you want to go meet the doctor. But it, I feel like today we're in, you know, because of cancel culture, right? You're, you have to, yeah. it's like you have to occupy two ends of a spectrum. You yeah. cannot be in the middle. And True. this is something which is so in the middle. So what do you do? So, yeah, I, I would like to talk a lot more about it. But the other thing that I have realized is beyond saying this, because um, it's not like I've, I've not been treated differently because of you know, yeah. any such thing. So I don't have too many experiences like that to share. But I have people, like a couple of people who reached out have said things like, oh, I was denied so-and-so opportunity because of this, et cetera, et cetera. And A, I don't feel equipped or empowered enough to tell their stories because it's their story. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like, what do you do? So when it comes to having these conversations, I think I've always struggled to figure out, okay, I've put this out there, but what next? 
Yeah, no, no, because um, it's you very rightly said, you know, it this needs to be a very normal conversation as opposed to saying like, oh, this is like brave to talk about. But the sad thing is because the conditioning is such that everyone's like, oh, it's a problem. Oh, it's a condition. We shouldn't be talking about it. That which is why it is considered brave, unfortunately, today. But hopefully, you know, um, with like, say, you and even other people coming out and talking about these things, it is normalizing the conversation, hopefully making it much more, I guess, inclusive and just acceptable that, yeah, it is what it is. It's it's not a big deal. It's not, you know, something to be so like, um, you know, intrigued by or, you know, shocked by or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I think there's also been uh, a similar uh, movement, I'd say, mm-hmm. um, or maybe not movement, but there's been an uptick in the way people talk about that curly hair in the past few yeah. years. I don't know if you've noticed. True, uh, true. I've yeah. always had this curly hair. Okay. I've never known how to maintain it. It's always been the same. My mom has the same hair. She didn't know how to maintain it. Mm-hmm. We've always had these struggles of like combing through this thick hair and putting it up in a ponytail because that looks neat. And then mm-hmm. you see people embracing it and you know, it's, there's like a movement and now you have like, you have so many brands that are dedicated to having curly yeah. hair. You have like a mainstream Bollywood actress who's now the brand ambassador of a brand and she's like, embrace your curls, love your curls, etc. And I feel like there is going to be a time that way where we will also talk about our skin that, you know, in, in, yeah. in a similar fashion. I think it's already begun, to be honest. Yeah, like, yeah. I remember there are people talking about like, uh, but you know, these moles on people's faces that, you know, we don't consider normal, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just a mole. Uh, or or Vinny Harlow. And there's so many people I can think of right now. Like there's a, there's a young girl in Delhi who has an Instagram account called Ria Agarwal. I've been seeing her, her posts okay. as well. People are just talking a lot more. So it's great um, to have those conversations because I think at one point you'll just realize the more you see it. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, who's the actress? Gina Davis. Mm. Gina Davis has uh, an institute, at least she had an institute, I don't know if it still exists, uh, which would just talk about gender and, you know, representation of women in media. Yeah. Mm. And uh, they had a newsletter called See Jane. And I remember the tagline of it saying, if she can see it, she can be it. I mean, of course, that was more for young girls. So I think that's, that's true of, you know, children overall, right? Just yeah. the more you see something, it's going to be normal. It's yeah. accepted. Yeah. And also, like how you said, it's it's even, I think, because cancel culture and that whole two ends of the spectrum, it's, it's again, it comes down to freedom of choice, right? You can be what you want to be. You can do what you want. It's it's your yeah. body, your choice, like what you want to do. With yeah, it. absolutely. And and I, I still think that if someone chooses it's you know, I think I, I I have had the privilege or I've been fortunate enough to be in environments where I have never been denied anything or treated differently mm. just because of the way my skin looks. Yeah. But there must I'm I'm very sure that there are people who are going through a lot more uh, you know, because of this and if they choose to get some sort of like help or treatment for this, yeah. um, that's absolutely fine. In my case, however, um I, I remember someone telling me that um and this was a doctor in the UK uh, mm. when I was studying there. Uh, just gone for another opinion and she said you know here's the thing there is no permanent cure for this uh you know we've still not been able to identify what it is that actually suppresses your melanocytes so whatever we do right now is a temporary solution like right. we'll regain color in that patch but it is very likely that that color will not stay forever for me which mm. was when i realized that do i really want to go through because it's it's time it's money and yeah. in my case it's also a bit of physical discomfort after a point of time so mm. do i really want to put myself through that Mm. So there, I had the, the ability to make that choice and I had the support mm. uh, from home, you know, sort of like to say, okay, that's your choice. We respect it. I don't think 
I mean, it's them, there are obviously people who may, who may not have that support, who may not even have that knowledge, right? And I think, and I remember this doctor in the UK telling me that, you know, people are fair there. So even when they lose color, it doesn't really show so as, as starkly as it does on Indian skin, which is a lot more brown. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can fully imagine, you know, uh, just the way it is, because we've, we've all grown up seeing people being made fun of everything. Like some <laughs> kid would go and get like a motte and come to school and we'll just like be making fun of that person for the next one week. Yeah. And, True. you know, we, we just tend to do all of that. So I think a lot of it just comes, I think maturity uh, yeah. will come, comes from understanding that it's okay for people to do whatever they want to do as long as you just let them do. And as long as no one's harming themselves or yeah. the other person, I guess, I guess just, just go ahead and do it. Yeah. And more power to you for owning who you are and, you know, just being yourself, honestly. Um, but yeah, I think now we're kind of coming to the end of this conversation. Uh, sadly, I'm having so much fun having this. I don't want it to end, to be honest. But I know, right? Yeah. I'm also just like, wow, this is such nice stuff to think about. And it's so good to be talking to you after so long. Yeah, I know, right? It's It's been so much fun. But uh, as they say, all good things must sadly come to an end. <laughs> but, no. <laughs> but yes uh, we always end with these uh, last two questions so the first one being um, you know what are your aspirations what are things you're looking forward to you know in the near or even distant future so my biggest aspiration is to be able to get back to teaching the way I used to uh, hmm, okay. say even before college uh, you know I remember like board exams my parents literally had to find which lock up the books because I wouldn't want to study for the exam I just like have a book and be reading. I've taken books uh, to school and kept it under my desk and, you know, textbook on top, like book below, done all of that. And then, then you've got the smartphone and I get so distracted now. I think my biggest aspiration uh, has actually been to just get back to my reading habits because I realize that everything else, you know, there's the very clear paths to achieve if you want yeah. to do something. But just, I aspire to be able to read like my 17-year-old self. I've mm. just not been able to do that in a very long time. Um, that's one but I think in terms of uh, things I want to do right I've I have this list of things that I've always liked to do I'm not putting any pressure on myself in terms of time about when I want to achieve it Mm -hmm. Um, so one of course has been just talking about uh, my skin uh, Mm. with children I think children have played such an important role in just my self my journey of self-acceptance yeah um, that I do want to write for them about difference differences okay um and that's not just limited to ways physical appearances but uh you know i think just in terms of other conditions like i would like to talk to them about let me put it this way i would like to write see stories in which um you know the the protagonists are children maybe differently able children or children Mm. with different conditions uh, and not necessarily it could even be people with different conditions and i think that for me is very is something is a project I hold very close to me because I feel like it's, it's a great time to be talking to them about you know differences and it's something that you know we 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 tend to talk a lot more and encourage a lot more these days. So that's one. Um, the other thing that I've always wanted to do is uh, uh, actually discover a lot more of my grandmom's cooking. So she wrote down these recipes for my mom and my aunt when they got married. So there was these like, lovely little recipe books, handwritten books that we've got. Yeah. Um, and my aunt is is the one who cooks pretty much just like my party. So, you know, just to sort of like standardize those recipes. And there's a beautiful uh, 
book, actually a cookbook that I even won a James Beard award, I think, um, called Five Morsels of Love. I don't know if you've I've heard it. of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. By Archana Pitatala. So it's yeah. a beautiful book where she's, um, her grandmother uh, wrote this, um, you know, how in most Tamil households, you see this book called Samitapar, which is okay. see the yeah. English version. So the Telugu equivalent of that. Okay. Her grandmother had written that ages ago and had always wanted to publish it in English. Sadly, okay. she passed before that could happen. So she took it upon herself and said, you know, I'm going to translate my grandmother's book. So it has these, uh, you know, household recipes of, uh, you know, the kind of pachadis and pulusus wow. uh, that they grew up eating. And also something as, uh, you know, I think a coffee custard in that book as well, which is something her grandmom would make for her. And that book is so filled with stories and so rich yeah. in just like transporting you to that time, uh, mm. you know, and you realize what, what an heirloom it actually is. Mm. So that's actually what inspired me to even start posting on Instagram and saying, hey, let's talk about like food right now a little bit. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's taken a lot of pushing from other people because I'm always like, no, what if I sound so pretentious? What if it's this? What if it's that? <laughs> that's that's like the other thing yeah. I need to get over. So I think I, I really want to rediscover my grandma's cooking and sort of put that put that knowledge together, even if it just means it's a book that my family is going to you know hold on to. And and that's also made me realize that um, for our community, I think the culinary heritage of our community is also maybe not spoken about enough. So yeah. something that might just lead into lead into that eventually. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just like finding these little things to keep doing and just having fun. No, it's really cool. And I'm really looking forward to all that you do. Um, because I think especially your writing on food and just the experiences you associate with it is is very um is very heartwarming to read, honestly. It's uh, it's you. literal soul food. <laughs> just throwing that fun. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Very clever pun, my dad. Yeah. <laughs> but no, really, it is. So I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, um what you come out with for sure. Um, but yeah, last question. Um, what is a piece of advice or learning that you know you'd like to share with people? Can be personal, professional, creative, anything. Just something you wish people just were more aware of or knew about. The thing I think my biggest learning, uh, which I'm not very great at uh, implementing, but my biggest learning over the past three years is that the sexiest thing on the planet is consistency. Mm, a good one. Yeah. It just just consistency and I'm so terrible at it but uh, whatever it is you do um, in fact I think this was on the on the Tim Ferriss show there was a chef called Marco Punora who had come okay. and he, he put it in a more simplified way which he said repetition is what leads to greatness mm-hmm. so for you to be great at what you do you just need to keep doing it over and over and over again and yeah. I realized that with, with, with my cooking, uh, you know, just in terms of the way I make a particular dish today versus the way I made it a few years ago, uh, there's a marked difference only because I've just done it so many times now. Yeah. But I've never consciously looked at it as, oh, I'm doing this to achieve greatness. So maybe for me, it, it never, but when he said that to me, I think it just like popped. It's, it's so true. I really hope to be able to keep doing more and more of the same thing. Uh, you know, so that at least I get to a point where I am finally convinced about my abilities to do it. Not to say that there's like any imposter syndrome at this point, but it's just, you know, self-doubt always creeps in, finds yeah. a way to, you know, just come in, just so, just so that you are confident that you've done the best that you can True. on that particular thing. So I think that's been my biggest learning. 
that's a that's a beautiful um you know saying and i completely agree consistency is really key i think the more you do something the better you will get at it and i think i think also because we're in a generation where so many people just expect instant gratification that Absolutely. you know it's it's really about putting in the work and taking baby steps and it's really progress over perfection and i think maybe the second thing that that uh, i've also realized uh, is that there's really no point in holding yourself to such high standards i think mm-hmm. when you're having fun just like for me i've always wanted to be authentic i yes. don't want to sound pretentious or some like someone i'm not Mm-hmm. but at the same time i don't want to sound stupid so i i'm always stuck in this place where you know i'm like if it's not perfect i don't post something like mm-hmm. my camera roll is filled with pictures of like random things i've made <laughs> and i'm always asked like why are you not posting this and i'm like no it doesn't look good like my 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 recent thing was you no know, there's a hair on the floor there and i was like no one's going to notice it's about the food it's not about the aesthetics about it and then i'm so i'm so like hung up on it being uh-huh. that perfect output that that becomes a barrier to my own consistency so i want to learn to let go of that a little bit and just like loosen up yeah and we hope you do because we're all waiting to see all the great content to come out of your page and books and whatever but uh, really um, more power to you no really more power to you dwani um it's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you thank you so much for doing likewise thank you thank you so much for being here really um really loved chatting with you and i really hope you had fun yeah thank you for thinking of me and then thank you for having me on this and i had so much fun because you know these are one of the conversations i these with people who get you are always, it's always nicer to like you end up getting a fresh perspective on yourself sometimes and you help me do that so thank you so much and good luck with like the podcast and the writing and the editing and just onwards and upwards from here thank you so much So that was my conversation with Dwani Sabesh. I really enjoyed recording this episode and it was a really wholesome conversation. Closing this episode with a piece written and narrated by Dwani. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you next week with a new guest and a new chronicle to share. Talk soon. So this is a a little note that I wrote uh, when I made pulao once. I've called it an ode to Pulau, and you'll see why. An ode to Pulau. Growing up, Sundays were my most favorite days because of one thing and one thing only. Sundays were when Mummy would make Pulau. The rare non-Pulau Sundays would see me throw horrendous tantrums and sulk all day. Till date, the last bit of any Pulau, be it at home or outside, is always saved for me by Mum and Dad. Being equal parts enthusiastic and curious about anything food related when I was old enough and most importantly tall enough to see above the granite countertops mummy would allow me to be a part of the sunday ritual first as a spectator and then slowly as her little helper the steps of the ritual always started with mum's prized possession her red colored flat bottomed nonstick prestige pan and she'd add the khada masala bit by bit Some days, if we were lucky, she'd fry cashew nuts and add them to the pulao as well. Mummy would teach me how to wash and soak the rice using as little water as possible, and how each grain of basmati rice should be long and unbroken. My favorite part was when she'd lift the lid off of the pan when the pulao was just done and add a big dollop of ghee on top, 
knowing fully well that I was following the puddle of melted ghee and would get the first ghee-laden serving. There are only two other households whose pulaos work similar magic for me. Balraj Paripa and Chitra Parima's microwave pulao, which I can eat endlessly with absolutely no shame. And Pushpi Parima and Ramani Paripa's Sabsi pulao with Parima's freshly ground garam masala, which I have once eaten for three days straight, prompting her to ask me, Mande, are you sure you're not bored? My pulao recipe is a mix of these three, Mummy's masalas, Perima's method of frying the soaked rice and cooking it in the microwave like Peripa. It never fails me. If you've read till the end, here's a high five for you. I recently read a note about why we still buy cookbooks in the age of recipes being online and the author said something I agree with. Cookbooks were and are always about the stories. As someone whose favourite part of Otulengi and Tamimi's Jerusalem is the tale of the Hamas Wars, I couldn't agree more. And after all, I am a storyteller's doctor.